Hey, Circle Take listeners. Thanks for joining me again. Today, we are talking to director and actor Robert Peters about the first feature film he directed, the 2006 musical comedy film, Half Empty. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is a deep, deep dive and no plot turn is sacred. You have been warned. Rule two, before you go any further, you should watch this movie. I promise you, while it's possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, it's a million times better if you watch the film first. So before we get started, how to watch Robert Peters Half Empty. As of the recording of this show, it's available on YouTube to rent for about a dollar. And it's available on DVD at Amazon, both new and used. And you can usually find a copy on eBay for a few dollars. This film is a true indies indie, so grab it on YouTube before it disappears. Robert Peters, Half Empty. Get a hold of it and give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Voila. Straight away, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. That's speed. Robert Peters interview, take one. Mark. Hello. And action. This is The Circle Take, conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film, and over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first-time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is actor and director Robert Peters. Robert is a veteran actor with over 50 credits to his name, working alongside some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Over the years, Robert has shared the screen with the likes of John Malkovich, James Spader, Jeff Bridges, Tom McCarthy, Louis Gossett Jr., just to name a few. After directing a handful of short films, one of which took the top prize at Slamdance, Robert's debut feature film was Half Empty, an improvised musical comedy from 2006 which follows the story of motivational speaker Bob Patterson, also played by Robert Peters in the film, who was on a less-than-amazing European book tour. The film won him several awards at film festivals, including Best Director at the L.A. Silver Lake Film Festival. Robert Peters, welcome to The Circle Take. Well, thank you very much. How was that intro? Did it sound pretty good? Wow, it sounded pretty good. Yeah. It made, made, made me feel good, yeah. It made me interested in this movie. <laughs> so as we sit here uh, in, in the world in which a film, for a brief few moments, won Best Picture that was, in fact, a musical, um, uh, I thought we could start with uh, sort of the story of, of how your film came to be, because it, it, it kind of ties into that Oscar moment. Well, absolutely. It was an amazing journey from the first time that Dan Mervish came to me with the idea to make the film. And, and Dan Mervish was your, Dan Mervish, your co-producer <clears throat> and also the DP on the film. Absolutely. We, the, the credit we gave him on the film was a Scheme by Dan Mervish because he had directed a musical entitled Open House. And I was one of the lead actors in, in that film. So we'd met, as you mentioned in the intro, we'd met uh, initially at Slam Dance when my first short film won an award there, Mutual Love Life. And then he and I were both being flown to Oldenburg Film Festival, which uh, Torsten Neumann runs. Just to clarify, Oldenburg is in Germany. It is in Germany. It so there's the Deutschland. beginning of that tie-in yeah, there. Exactly. And, and it is a full-on tie-in. So he came to me, I think it was literally a month before we were going to both be flown to Germany with other films. I had a short film that I produced with John Stamos called I Am Stamos that Rob Meltzer directed. And then I had another short film that I was 
that we sort of made into a short film, but it was a it was a, a part of a TV show, but it was called Fishing with Supermodels with a German uh, by the name of Claudia Schiffer. And Never was, heard of her. Yeah, exactly, Never heard of her. Exactly. <laughs> so it was that was actually so, so aside those two short films, and then Open House is being shown at, at Oldenburg. So that's mm-hmm. the reason why Dan and I are both going to Oldenburg. So Dan Mervish, and he's a maverick in every sense of the word, and he's a, he's a filmmaker, a great filmmaker, and he had Open House as a, as a musical that he decided for fun just to do. But he found out that the Academy Awards, and as you said, this is a, definitely a tie-in this year with La La Land, but in a bizarre way, he found out that there was a category of the Academy Awards that was going unused every year, and that was the original musical. Because in the year 2005, 2006, when you guys had made this film, right. there hadn't been a feature film musical in years. Well, there had been many musicals, like Chicago and all of these, but... But, but, th- but this not an original. Ca- exactly. Right. This category is very specific. It, it cannot be adapted from any kind of stage production. The songs have to... They have to be what I call Elvis style, which is... Right, you, right. you ask a question, you... You, you sing a, back the answer. So it, it, here sits Dan Mervish right. with his newly minted original feature film musical. Right. And he thinks to himself, gee, here's this category. How do I get my film into it? Yeah, exactly. But the funny thing is... At that time, they, and they changed the rules because of us. At that time, there there had to be five films, and if you if there were five films, if you met that requirement, then you're almost guaranteed of a nomination, which is comical in itself. But and so Dan had done his research and he had learned that there were four films at, at present before we went to Germany, including his own, <clears throat> including his own. So there was a, a Neil Young, I believe, had an original musical That's film correct. that year, yep. and Matt uh, Stone and Trey Parker. Had, oh right, not, had, they, they had, had uh, uh, the team, South, team the South, America. Team America. America, which right. had musical in it, so that could right. count. And then I think Alan Menken, who's the big musical guy with Disney, I think he had he had something. Oh, sure. Right. One of the Disney films. Home on the Range or something. Right. right. Could be counted as a musical. Yeah. So, so yeah, here, because, Dan sits and says, there's right. four, including right. mine. All I need is one more. Right. And he's testing out every other possibility, like, like Lake Carice. There was School of Rock. I, I can't remember what all. There were films that seemed almost like they would be eligible, and then those were all disqualified. So he comes to me and he picked someone just delusional enough to think that I could make a film with no prep and and improvise the whole thing and and I but I just wanted to do it. So so, so walk me through that first yeah. conversation. Yeah. Dan Mervish comes to you with this crazy idea to basically fabricate an original musical feature film so that we can try and open up this category. What, like what was that conversation? What did he say? Well, what was it, that pitch it, it, for you? Yeah, that's a great question because for him he not only didn't care what the film looked like in a way he was like it could be it could be a bad film you know it, it doesn't matter as long as it meets the requirements we're just going to have a camera and just do something but in my mind i'm thinking no no this is a chance to make a film i mean i'm, I'm <laughs> you know i'm, I'm going to make a great film here but dan was like no no just long, we just got to get it done it's got to have five songs it has to be the songs have to be written by the same team of writers. We wrote them at my dining room table for the most part. This was in L.A., right? You're, yeah. These conversations yeah. are happening in L.A. Was, was uh, the plan always to go to Germany to shoot this film? No, he and I, well, he knows that we're both being flown to Germany. So we're both, so that part's taken care of. So we decided we're going to shoot the film during the festival. So a lot of our expenses are covered. So I want to give a, the biggest shout out to Stan Woodward 
And Stan Woodward has been one of my best friends since we were like 12 years old. So he, Also one of the producers on the film. Well, yeah, and that's why I want to mention that, because in, in answer to your question about the original conversation, you know, for me as a director and as an actor and, and whatever else I'm going to do, I want to know that I've got a little money to make this thing something. So Stan was our executive producer, benefactor, and, and the one who, and we shot it for next to nothing, but it was still, you needed something to beyond our expenses you know we had our hotel and we had you know our plane fare and that was covered for dan and i because we were going to the festival but now you know we need all the things you need to make you know film and we got to figure out how we're going to get favors and blah 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 but i wanted some kind of cushion and it was kind of funny because it's a complete dinosaur now but at the time we had this dvx 100 which was the the, the the mini DV right twenty four frame video camera exactly that challenged film <laughs> it was it was the first video camera where somebody actually created a website called filmisdead.com. dot right. com yeah uh, a film director uh-huh. uh, who had shot a movie with this camera and was so convinced that its frame rate was enough to kill film that people were out there making movies with it and challenging uh, film. Wow. Which, of course, really wouldn't die in, until larger chip video cameras came out much years later. But it was that first glimmer in independent filmmakers' eyes that when people really saw that camera and, and what that frame rate could do to video that changed a lot of people's ideas about video. Yeah, I was, I was blown away by how it looked. And even, even today, if I could choose to shoot it on a, you know, a different camera, Red or Alexa or a, one, even one of these 5D or 7D you know, cannons, I don't know that I would necessarily have to do that. I mean, I, I was proud of how it looked on the DVX-100. And, and that's, by the way, being a film snob, because my first two films, the short films that I directed, were both shot on 35. And, and the Stamos thing, we, uh, we got Super 35. And also, to me, it was, um, you know, Robert Benton, who directed Kramer versus Kramer, talked about directors finding their canvas. And to me, this was appropriate for this canvas. I mean, Half Empty is, is almost a mockumentary. It definitely has that feeling. That, I mean, we'll get into that in a little bit. I okay. just want to sort yeah. of move into the production phase. Now that cool. you guys have sat around your table, right. you've written these songs, yeah. you know you're flying to Germany, you all right. get on a plane, you go to this festival. And, I, and, I'm, um, and I've labored over an outline. All I have is, is an outline for what the story's going to be. And no script. No script at, at any time. And That's, you've just come up with this character for yourself, yep. which, which you play the lead in this film as well. Yep. So let's just go through the real sort of concrete basics of the production now. Let's just talk about the physical process of how you guys made this movie. I'm just going to rattle off the, sort of the nuts and bolts questions to kind of get into the nitty-gritty. So how many days did you shoot this film in? I mean, if you add it all up, I'd, I'd call it like eight days. Does that include, because we'll talk about this later again, but there were there were some pickup shots. Does that include pickup shots? Yeah, it does. I'm averaging that out because because bear in mind we are shooting during the film festival. Right. So we so have, these we have, aren't like, hey, everybody come no. up on set at six thirty yeah. in the morning no. and we'll wrap at seven p.m. No, we have responsibilities with the festival. We're, we're showing our films. We're going to parties. <laughs> well, I know later we'll talk about some of the scenes that that came as a result of me seeing another filmmaker actress who happened to be at the festival and I asked her to be in the film. So I just, in my mind, that's what I've sort of averaged it out to be if you were going to look at full days of shooting, uh, about eight days. Okay. And how many people on the crew? <laughs> really one or two at the most. And, and so that one person would be Dan Mervish. Dan, well, no, Dan, no, we had, Dan Mervish was, was the shooter always. Uh, right. So, there, so, so far so, your crew is so Dan. So when, when we arrived to Germany, we did have the luxury of 
one or two Germans that would join us, but only only, only one, on one a given, at a time. Only one at a time. Yeah, <laughs> I thought but it was funny because a buddy of mine, Lucas Billon, who's a great cinematographer, who's actually Lucas was going to shoot it, and then he couldn't. He got a movie, so he said, "Listen, I've got two friends of mine that live in Germany. They'll help you." So that's what we had. So Felix and Andreas were our entire crew. Uh, so, so at any given moment, two people in the entire crew. Yeah, exactly. But we never. So for, had, for anyone out there who yeah. thinks they need, yeah. you know, a five-ton grip truck and a crafty table and a hair and makeup and an art department and all these department heads and yeah. 50 people standing around with cups of coffee. Superfluous. You all can make a film extraneous with, with two people. Exactly. So I was going to ask you how long your typical days are, but you didn't have typical days because you were just picking up the camera on a lunch break and, hey, let's grab a scene. Exactly. Okay, crazy. And obviously, uh, this goes without well, saying, no permits. No permits. But I, but I will say, we did plan days. I mean, there weren't, it wasn't like you know, completely happenstantial, but, but we right. did have to, again, accommodate things that were going on. Now, the, the short films that you made, and I'm thinking Mutual Love Life as an example, won a bunch of awards, shot on 35, there's dollies, there's complicated camera moves, it's rack focusing, it's cinematic, it looks fantastic. Thank you. That looks like a film that is a calling card for a director that says, I know how to make movies. It's a very traditional film, right? My question there is, how does making a short film like that prepare you in any way for doing what you guys did making this feature film? Or, or, or not? Did, did you find it was helpful having those experiences that creating is, short films? That is, that is a great question. Mutual Love Life, I shot in one day, one long day, but I shot in one day. And I'll say this, with, with Mutual Love Life, I had the luxury of... I shot on a stage at Sony Studios. My sound mixer was a like a two-time Academy Award winning. I mean, there there were areas that I didn't have to worry about. However, even when you have all that, things can go wrong, as we know, and they do. And my biggest shot, my opening shot, my dolly shot, which which took us all morning. And again, we're shooting this in one day. I had a mistake with my actors sitting in the wrong place because one of my actors couldn't be at the rehearsal, and I didn't realize that it and it killed me. So, in answer to your question. That moment where I had to, as a director, just go, it's the oldest cliche in the book, I'm going to have to figure out a way to fix that in post. Okay, I had a million of those (laughs) with half empty. But I will say, to go through that first moment as a director where you just, you can't fix it. You know, you've got to move on. You've got to move on and just hope and pray there's some way you're going to editorially fix that. So that that was a great lesson for me. Discussing a little further into that, the whole concept of this film being this sort of like documentary, like you said, you know, you had a million things to fix. Because this film was improvised, it's very gun and run, it's very documentary style. Did you find that style was helpful in the process of making that film that freed you up? Or did you find that you were sort of confined by the gun and run sort of Dada-esque, totally stripped down way of making that film? I think the, the 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 run and gun and the the limited resources et cetera that we had with Half Empty gave it just a, a genuine feel because it was genuine. And I think that the good news was everybody was willing to roll with whatever happened. I, I think with with filmmaking that when you have that attitude from everybody involved, even though we had so few people involved, but from Dan to lead actresses and the other actors. It just gave this uh, humanity to it that that I think it helped the film. Let's actually play a clip from the film right now. There's a scene in the film that really speaks to this idea uh, in particular. Let me set up this clip. So uh, your character has just arrived. There's a woman named Greta who's sort of taking care of you, and she decides to take you out on the town, basically to kill time. 
introduces you to a friend of hers, this guy named Callie, who's sort of a, I don't even know how to describe him, sort of like the, the German version of like a hipster dude. He's very slick, he's got a suit, he's got sunglasses on at night, he's driving a fancy car. You guys get in the car with him, and uh, I'll sort of describe the action of the scene. You essentially, we're in the car. Your character is talking to the two of them about his book, and then some traffic sort of gets going in the street, and uh, what you'll hear is Callie get out of the car and beat a guy up in the street and then get back in the car, and then we hear your character dealing with that afterwards. Let's take a listen. You have to find your North Star. Can you tell him that? Yeah. Everybody can believe what you want, you know? And uh, I'm a happy guy, but... Me too. <laughs> you and I are two peas in a pot. Mädchen, du hast einmal zurück und dann rum! Sonst rühm ich dein Auto weg hier! Idiot! Mensch, fahr weg hier! Sonst dreh ich dir den Arsch! Glaubst du nicht? We get him a book when we get back to the hotel. We get him a book. That man is yours and that out of it here. How up the panel? I want to show you one chapter. This? Uh, chapter four. It's just about hostility. Everything else, everything. Oh no, I, 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 and I understand where you're feeling. Uh, hostility comes from a from a deep place, Kelly, and I know you know that. <laughs> So, so, so walk me through the experience of, of what's going on. Because there's two things that strike me. Is One is that you're trying to improvise a scene with a guy in the car who's not an actor. And then dealing with the circumstance that happens in front of you in trying to maintain being, quote unquote, in character in this moment. Walk me through what that was like. Yeah, I got to go back. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you for just playing that clip. I, I, <laughs> I cannot tell you how good that makes me feel just to hear that. I mean, and then I was having to just bite my lip when you were describing what the scene was as it as it does appear to people in the movies. So now I want to walk you from the beginning because, right. because what happened was we came back to the hotel because we shot a lot of the film in the Interconti Hotel. We came back from a long day of shooting, and out walks this guy, Callie Swenson. And he is literally a mafia guy. I mean, he's a known bad dude. We, we called him the Jimmy Hoffa of the underworld, you know, the, that, that kind of guy. So you're saying this is in the city of Hamburg, right? In the city of Hamburg, right. in, the, in the sort of the underworld of, of Hamburg, he's a known... But he's kind of a celebrity. I mean, like the... Like right, the, he's the, a celebrity the good criminal. good guys, no, yeah. So, but, so, like, like back in the 80s, it was like John Gotti in New York. Yeah. And he, he walked the streets great, free. Yeah, great. Everybody knew who he was. Exactly. Or the, yeah, or what we sometimes hear about Dillinger, or whoever, you know, these right, people right, that right. somehow... Celebrity you know, criminal. Yeah, the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> perfectly said. So I don't know who this guy is, but he, he, he was doing an interview at, at the hotel. So he comes out of this interview, immediately says... a. Big hi to uh, Marika Fell, who's our lead actress, who's very attractive, and so and you can tell he's very attracted to Marika, and so she comes to me and says, "Listen, do you know who this guy is?" I said, "No," and she said, "He's you know, as you said, the celebrity cr- criminal," and she says, "Would you want him to be in the film?" This truly is my proudest moment as a director because, on the spot, I said, "Yeah." Let's do it. Let's make it work. Now, nowhere in the outline, of course. And it, 
really became my favorite scene in the movie. And here, well, and, and let me just say, it's not just this scene. So after after this scene where this all this goes down, yeah, he gets back in the car, takes you to a nightclub, which is essentially like a strip club, or I don't know, there's crazy things well, happening in this club, right? And and sort of brings you into his world. Well, yeah, and, I, and this I, is all in the film. Yeah, and ju- but just before that, I have to come up with an idea to make him to justify why he's in the film. And again, to give you a real picture of this guy, when he shakes your hand, blood comes out of your head. He's got, <laughs> he's got a scar down the side of his face. He he's scary. He's scary. So I'm thinking maybe we could shoot in a strip club. So that became the plan. So we're driving down to shoot in a strip club scene. And I'm, you know, again, I'm a happiness counselor, so I'm doing my spiel in the car, as, as you heard on the clip. But what happens is, literally, and we're driving in the Raperbahn, which is the red light district of Hamburg, he stops right in the middle of the street. I mean, it'd be like stopping in the middle of Sunset Boulevard or Ventura Boulevard. I mean, there's, I'm worried about traffic hitting us, but he just, he gets road rage. Someone cuts him off. You don't cut this guy off. He just <laughs> stops the car. And then in German, unless you speak German, he's just cussing the guy out. Then he gets out, and people are yelling at him because they know him. And yeah, then, yeah. And then, I, I believe yeah. he's actually calling the guy an ass licker. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, roughly what that glad translates. Glad you did your yeah. translation there. <laughs> but but uh, but I think the funniest moment, well, two amazing things. First of all, this guy lumbers over thinking he's, because Kelly's not that big, but he's like a pit bull. He just, you know, you don't. You ferocious. Don't yeah. So this guy comes over. This is all on camera. And, and we should say that Kelly's maybe like 5'10". If that, no, no, shorter the, than that. No, the, the guy who comes over is easily six foot or better. Yeah. He's yeah. a giant German dude. Absolutely. So Callie takes him down with three punches. <laughs> and what you don't see in the, you know, I wanted to ask for more coverage, but I didn't feel like it. <laughs> but but you, there's blood coming out of the back of the guy's ear. I mean, Callie took care of him. This is not a scene right. you're going to ask the guy, hey, right. can I get another one of those? Right. <laughs> so the camera's still rolling. Uh, to Dan's credit, he keeps the camera rolling. So Callie gets in the car, and I start keeping, I mean, this is a gold mine. The moment in real life is this guy's just gotten out of the car and beaten a dude up in the street as a crowd of people cheers him on. Right. So the adrenaline and the rage Age right. in real life now for this mobster dude is pumping. Absolutely. And he gets back in the car yeah. and you in character start messing with him. Exactly. Exactly. And that's and so what's the mood in the car in that moment? Like is this guy about to punch your lights out? Yeah. The mood in the car, Marika has knows this guy, so she's in the back seat waving me, please don't do that. Don't don't <laughs> don't do your motivational stuff. Drop stop. it, drop this it. This guy will punch you. You're next. You're you're you know, he's still right. you know, and I While think, you're leafing through the book, trying oh, to yeah. find a passage to help his his anger. No, my, my, my line, my line. I say hostility comes from a deep place, Callie. And I know you. <laughs> I know you. So he his eyes are fire red. Oh, and then I think two things saved my life. I think one, his English is not that great. And two, I think he finally remembered we're, we're still making a movie. Right. And he needed then, to get back into characters. Yeah, <laughs> but it took, there was a beat where I really did think he was going to hit me. Amazing. To continue, so we, we get there, and all of a sudden, I realize this guy has carte blanche wherever he wants to shoot. You mentioned permits at the beginning. Okay, so now imagine walking into a strip club. This anyway, guy is a walking film permit. Nobody says anything. We've right. got a camera. I mean, and, and all these scenes really open the film up and, and wow. give it some crazy production value. Yeah. Uh, let's just touch really briefly on the concept of being an actor directing a film, because in my experience, I've worked with a lot of first time directors. A really good handful of them are actors. And I'm always curious to know if the experience of being on set as much as you have as an actor helps you or informs 
your process as a director, especially in a film like this where it really is improvised, are you using that acting experience in a way that you thought was beneficial to the film? Oh, I think absolutely. I feel like I've learned from every director that I've worked with, good or bad, but I mean, especially, you know, I've had a chance to work with Steven Soderbergh and Spielberg, and, and you watch and learn, and you watch how they deal with actors, and, and I think some actors, I mean, some directors, I should say, are more actors, directors, and I, I'm certainly that, because I am an actor, and there's some directors that are more technical, and I definitely have a, a strong ideas about the camera, but I think if you're going to err towards one way, I think acting is most important to me, and where I feel like is, is my greatest strength, and hopefully that, that shows. Let's move into post-production now, because this was a really quick shoot. You're in Germany, you come back. Let's talk about post on this film, because I was there for part of it. I think, truth be told, uh, we worked on this film for well over six months trying to sculpt this footage into a movie. So talk about some of the challenges there. In an improvised film, the camera's moving around, it's all handheld. There aren't multiple takes. Yeah, you're you're definitely confined. You don't have the luxury. I didn't obviously didn't have a script supervisor. You don't have the luxury of even knowing for sure. And and, and I do want to back up just long enough to say once we did the academy thing and played that out, that was where I had to decide whether I had a film that was worthy of even really bringing someone like you in and really getting serious about an edit. That, that yeah, and sense. and that is where I came in. I looked at your academy cut. Yeah, but just, but just and I yeah. said. There's something there. Well, exactly. And, so, and just prior to you, I had 20 people at my house, friends that I respected. And I said, listen, don't anybody BS me because I need to know, do we have a film? And, and everybody said, yeah, you got a film here. And then I think once you and I started, that was really so much fun because I started to see scenes cut together, like the one with Callie, for example. I mean, we were able to make, and, and real moments, and, and that's the thing that I think that, that's so different about this film. There were so many real moments at the triathlon where I'm interviewing people. I mean, these people really think I wrote a book. I mean, they really think I'm a motivational yeah, yeah. speaker. So I've got to figure out a way to make all these moments fit into the story. Speaking of the book, let's quickly play a little clip because we haven't heard any of the music yet. Oh yeah, and yeah, it is a musical. What, two or three of the songs are written in pickup scenes actually. And this is one of them. So a lot of the sort of structural stuff that right. that was worked on in post-production sort of revealing the sort of limitations of the sketch of the idea that was, you know, originally shot yeah. was sort of flushed out into, into sort of more structural stuff. So this is the scene early in the film that sort of sets up the idea of your character going on tour. Right. You're sitting in the office. You've got uh, Michael Dean Jacobs, Leslie Rogers and Martin Dew. Uh, who are all playing your managers, a trio of managers. Right. And, and later in the scene, we have uh, Carly Rothenberg. They've sat you down to inform you that, lo and behold, although your book's doing terribly in the U.S., it's doing well in one particular place. Right. Well, look, it's not all gloomy do. No, it's not. There is some good news. You better believe there's good news. <laughs> Say goodbye to Glendale, my friend. You are going abroad. Overseas. Crossing the pond. Schnitzel. Bavarian Alps. Land of the Shrew. We've got a tour set up for you. You're going to Hamburg, Germany. A book signing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Greta from the LM Publishing L&M Office. Publishing. She's going to take you to Hamburg. She's going to take you to Oldenburg. You're doing a tour. You're yeah, doing a right. huge with, tour, and you're going to wind up a conference, conference with Blaine Abernathy. Blaine? Yes, that makes me happy. Yes, that makes me happy. That's right. What are you looking up for you, you know? Big things. Well, you're big, you're big, you're big in Deutschland. Is that Germany? Your books are selling out all over Deutschland. Yeah, you're big. Oh, you're big. You're big in Deutschland. So big. It makes my head spin. Your book hit the shelves and people waited in line. 
people from the country took their boats down the Rhine. From Oldenburg, Hamburg, Munich to Berlin. This book's a winner, man. It's time to cash in. We've been wasting our time. So that just gives you a flavor. Who wrote that song, by the way? Stan Woodward and myself and uh, Dan Mervish and Leslie Rogers. Leslie Rogers, uh, who you hear singing in that song. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I will say on certain songs, I mean, Stan, uh, I would give most of the credit on that on that particular song. But yeah, there's a, you can hear a little bit of songcraft in there. It's not yeah. just three chords no, no, and the truth. Yeah, he, he's, he's a, an amazing musician as well. It's funny, earlier you said that one mistake that drove you crazy on your short film. I assume on this film, you know, you've already mentioned that this film was just all mistakes. <laughs> So now we've arrived at the circle take. So what I want to talk about here are the lessons that you learned, the things you were able to take away from this film and apply to other things you've done. In particular, uh, I know you've made some short films since then. In no particular order, I'm wondering if there was something that surprised you, like a particular thing that you learned from this experience that was surprising to you that you didn't see coming. Wow. So many things. Um... I think the most surprising thing for me, and I probably won't be able to articulate this as well as I would like to, but in post-production, editorially, there were times where I literally was happier with the mistake than I was had I got it the way I wanted it initially. And that was a real discovery. It was a real surprise. Sure. That I, th- I thought, there's no way I'm going to be happy with this. Because this is what every I guarantee every director does. You take full credit when someone sees something that was actually a mistake on your part. And they go, I love that moment where you did this and so. And you're going... Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> fully intended and wrong. On the flip side, did you find yourself doing something or thinking a certain way? Something about the experience that in retrospect you thought to yourself, I'm not doing that again. I remember watching Soderbergh on Ocean's Eleven. I never saw the guy sweat. I never saw him lose it. And he talks about in the DVD how nervous he was. I never saw it. On my second film, which I, I did with kids, called A Bus Stops Here, Leslie Rogers actually was my EPK. I was able to see myself when everything was going wrong. The EPK is the behind-the-scenes guy. Exactly. He the video. So I think every, every director should have the luxury of that at least one time because you watch yourself when you're under pressure. And you watch. It, it's like seeing yourself drunk or something because you, you don't know how you are. But I, I literally, on that day, wanted to leave the set. I won't, I'll stay on half empty. But I definitely had moments on half empty where I just had to man up even when I felt like everything was falling apart, you hopefully didn't see that on my face. And I, and I said, listen, we're going to make this work. And I think it was a resilience that I've kind of always had, I suppose. But it's, I think every director needs that moment where you just got to say, I'm going to somehow make this work. If you start to have a meltdown on set, then you know everybody's going to be like, well, what, are, "What are we doing here?" You know, right? Or, or in your case, the, the two other guys on set are going to be like, <laughs> <laughs> and when I say everyone, one one German and, and Dan. <laughs> Did you find that there were things that surprised you in how easy they went? Was there anything that you found? Oh, that was actually pretty easy. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially when you're filming, you know, things sometimes happen that just flow, especially when it's improvisation. So as a director, the best example I can give you is I, I'd never met my lead actress. You know, it wasn't like we had a, um, a working relationship or friendship or anything. I, so I, I had to tell her exactly what I wanted, especially in the first scene where she tells my character how stupid he is. And what was amazing was I was able to articulate to her exactly the feeling that I wanted 
and really what I wanted her to say without giving her a, a line reading, per se, and then watch it go. So with the right actors, when you have the right actors, it's amazing how that can make your life so much easier. And, and Marika just couldn't have been better. And she was she was an actress in Germany. She oh, wasn't like somebody off the street. Absolutely. No, I mean, we were fortunate because of Torsten, too, because Torsten, I think, built us up as these big filmmakers from L.A. Sure. When, and then they see us with the, with the camera, no crew. <laughs> Two guys in the camera. Yeah, so they were, but they were already committed. Bela B. Felsenheimer and uh, Mara Karloff are two of the other leads in the film. Those guys are, this always sounds hokey to say, but they're, they're actually big stars. They're known in entities in Germany. A- absolutely. No, sure. Bela, especially musically, Bela... Really, he's like he's a total rock star. If you mention the band name, and I always butcher it, but it's Dierzta, which means the doctors. If you mention it to any German who knows German music, they'll go, what? Right, right. Everyone and, knows that. Yeah, and, and, we, and actually, we were walking around Hamburg singing songs. People would stop this guy every 30 <laughs> seconds. But uh, and, and, and that was another scene. When the, the first scene that I had with him at the, at the book signing, again, if I had one thing I, I, I pride myself on, it's getting an actor in the scene with me, and even if I'm not acting with him, but just getting him or her to relax enough to enjoy it. To, and, and he's a he's a real rock star. He's a genuine, like you said, people stop him on the street. Absolutely. Let's actually hear a little clip of the two of you, because uh, it's funny, you've decided to cast this, this <laughs> genuine rock star, he's got the hair, the whole yeah. thing, as a sort of introverted, fumbling, <laughs> desperately in need of contact. My one fan, my, sort my of nerdy. Very, his yeah. super ultra fan to set this up this is your character sat down for book signing absolutely no one has shown up except this one super super tweaked out little uh, super fan played by Bela B. Felsenheimer this German rock star but you know still hoping absolutely. I'm the best I know I'm, I'm the best man for well, absolutely for, you are yes and you you know when you you told me like the saying it you know like, absolutely I said no, no. I, I said definitely respect the restraining order because that's a yes. law you have to respect the restraining order, but I said, but I said, you know, st- keep your heart there, keep, stay in the fight, yeah. keep looking for your north star, was... and uh, and that's what you've got to do. It's holding to that strength. It's 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 being that strong German, that that Arnold Schwarzenegger German. Arnold, uh, Arnold is Austrian, by the way. But... Regardless, he's a strong yeah. guy that fights the fight. Yeah. And you know what you need to do, Fritz? You need to treat life like it's a bank, and you need to draw out a loan of emotion, draw it alone of strength. You make a down payment of love and you stick with that, Fritz. Once you do, then the interest starts to accrue. And by the time you finish with Karina, you're gonna have a full bank account, you'll have a savings account, you'll have a checking account, you'll be writing checks of love each and every day. When you emailed me after Valentine's Day, uh, 14th of February. Yeah, when I know you you were, uh, you, you, uh, they, they they picked you up at the house. Yeah. And uh, and I know but I know that you, you weren't convicted, but I, I said, I said to you then, you're still a strong tree, and you and you find the trunk. You yeah. find the, it's more important about the trunk of the tree than it is the branches. Uh, so, what I love is that first of all, here's this rock star, and he absolutely knows the rules of yes and. He's yeah. just whatever you say, he's going with it. He's fully committed to being there with you. And what I love about what you're doing in that scene is you you start with one analogy move into another one and by the end of the scene he's into a third one he just keeps just you're just layering on these analogies but yeah and he was so much fun to work with man and he he's a, he's a great actor i think that was a fun that was a fun scene the last thing i, I want to ask you is advice there's that 
sort of classic character out there, the aspiring filmmaker. There's that young person, maybe made a couple of short films, maybe they've gone to film school, maybe they haven't. You know, they don't have parents in the business. They're trying to crack that nut and get in there. They're starting to think about making a feature film. They're beginning that process. What I want to know is what advice can you give that person today? Well, first and foremost, I'd be very picky about the material. I, I think it always starts with the script. As they say, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. And I think a lot of times we're so hungry to direct and we, we want to do it that we don't really test the material. So make sure that the script is exactly you know something you can put because it's going to be a long haul. And then secondly, develop the trust with the actors. And casting is always one of the most fun parts, if not the most fun part, of directing, you know, where you're bringing, you know, the, the faces to the page. And I wanted to say that that can be very difficult to develop that trust. And I think the, the more you can do that on a personal and professional level, the better off you are. And, and as a director, you just got to be prepared for temperaments. You've got to be prepared, and that's both cast and crew, but just be adaptable and as, as much as you can be. And, and again, just develop that trust as, as soon as you can from, from your cast and crew, and that'll, that'll make things go as, as smooth as possible. All really good advice. Robert Peters, thank you for being on The Circle Take. Matt, thank you. That's our show for today. The Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, where there's always many more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take, where you'll find photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. All of this and more is all on our website, thecircletake.com. I'm Jason Schmid, and you can circle that one.